Uh, let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord, we um, come before you and we want to set this time aside for you, Lord God. Um, whether we have heavy hearts, um, distracted, Lord, we just want to come before you and allow you to speak to us today. Holy Spirit, we pray you would teach us. Your words would enter our minds, our ears, our minds, our hearts, Lord God. And so, Lord, we lift this time to you. And we want to honor you, Lord God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I don't know why, it seems like it's been a long week, 4th of July, uh, seems like a long time ago for some reason, um, and uh, it was another week, and it was another week of tragedy, of violence, and bloodshed, uh, 4th of July started off, right off the bat, again, with violent acts, um, and these violent acts that we've been seeing lately, what strikes me is that they seem to continue more commonly come at the hands of younger and younger people. Again, what was it, a 19-year-old, an 18-year-old uh, this past 4th of July? Um, and what always strikes me as we see these incidents happen and, and we see the pictures of these murderers and these offenders are taking place, what strikes me is always seeing their eyes. I look at these young eyes, and I just see cold, empty, and evil in these eyes. And I think to myself, we're really seeing before our eyes is the corruption of a generation. We're seeing uh, this young generation, a product of the culture that they're growing up in, and it's not a culture that they established. They're growing up in this culture. And we're seeing the effects of it. And I describe this culture, and when I look at the culture, I was thinking about this, and if I was to describe it, I, the, the mindset of the culture today, I really think this is a, I describe it as the blind pursuit of pleasure. If I was to describe the culture today, the culture that we're all living in and, and this generation is growing up in, it's the mindset is this blind pursuit of pleasure. People want to feel and experience pleasure, whether it actually brings them lasting happiness or not. They'll blindly pursue pleasure, whether it really produces happiness or not. Whether it's good or it's right, it's become, that's becoming really subjective and really secondary to the idea of experiencing pleasure. People will go to great lengths to find pleasure, and often blindly. They're not realizing the consequences of what they're pursuing, so long as they can experience pleasure in their life. And if you pay attention, if you know people who, who live this way, they're willing to mask their unhappiness for this pursuit of pleasure. They're really not happy, but they continue to pursue this pleasure as if this pleasure is going to bring happiness. 
And if you know anybody, perhaps they've experienced their struggles with drug abuse or a promiscuous lifestyle or the pursuit of fame, anyone who's experienced those things, they will tell you if they're answering honestly that pleasure does not bring happiness. Yet people will do whatever they can to pursue pleasure because they're unhappy. They're empty. They're pursuing something to give meaning. And I've mentioned before to you guys, like if we were to like uh, describe our life as a genre, a movie genre, right? I talked about that. Like, what, what would your movie genre look like? For someone who pers- lives their life in the pursuit of pleasure, I would describe that life as a tragedy. If I was to describe, categorize it in movies, it's like a tragic story. Webster's Dictionary describes or defines tragedy as a serious drama typically describing a conflict between the protagonist and a superior force, or such as destiny or something, and having a sorrowful or disastrous conclusion that elicits pity or sorrow. That's how he defines tragedy. And we all know, we've all seen movies that have a tragic ending. In fact, some of the most popular movies that we've seen throughout, the, throughout you know, time are often tragic stories. They end in some kind of tragic ending. And we've kind of romanticized these stories, right? We've romanticized these stories that have these tragic endings. And we kind of, we don't really consider at the end of it, was it worth it all? You know, was it worth all that for this ending? We kind of bypass that because we kind of get caught up in the storyline. That we don't tend to think about the ending part. With all that happening, was it worth it knowing the ending? Last week we saw two examples of faith. We saw Jairus, a synagogue ruler or an official, he showed his faith that Jesus could give or can save his daughter and heal his dying daughter. He humbled himself before Jesus and begged him to come save her. And so we saw that along the way, as Jesus went to travel to go heal Jairus' daughter, there was another woman, a woman who struggled for 12 years. And she also showed a faith in Jesus, that Jesus could save her if she can only touch his garment. He doesn't even need to know she's there. If I can just touch Jesus' garment, I will be saved and healed. And sure enough, Jesus saves this woman and heals her of her affliction. And sure enough, and in that moment we saw in the story that people came to Jairus, reported to Jairus while he was on his way to his daughter, that his daughter died already. Don't bother the teacher anymore. But what did Jesus do? He told Jairus, do not fear, only believe. And sure enough, Jesus resurrects his daughter and gives life and saves her. These two examples of faith leading to experience the miraculous. Today we're going to see the contrast, the other end of that. If you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 6. 
verse 1. Again, I encourage you to bring your Bibles. If you have your Bibles, we'd love for you to get to know your Bibles. If you don't have your Bibles, you can look up, or we have a uh, Bible in the pews in front of you. Verse 1. And he went out, he being Jesus, went out from there, and he came into his hometown. And his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And the many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. I'll stop right there. So we move from a series of dramatic events from the last couple of times in the previous chapters to Jesus returning along with his disciples to his hometown of Nazareth. I don't know if you guys ever thought of this. How many of you have ever thought of returning to your childhood neighborhood? Right? How many of you thought of very, like, uh, very, have very heartwarming thoughts of returning to your childhood neighborhood? It sounds like a great idea for many of us, right? I have very fond memories of my childhood and the neighborhood. Back then, you can, you can as a little kid, ride down the block and play in the streets, and no one gave a second thought. You know, very, back then, you know, you can have that kind of childhood. Well, I, I went back. And I was in the area, and so I went back to my childhood neighborhood. Uh, let me just say, it wasn't the same as I remembered it. <laughs> it didn't look quite as safe, not as clean. The thought of going back to my, my childhood neighborhood was a, more, a better thought than reality. I wouldn't know anybody who lived there anymore. So sometimes going back to your childhood, to a homecoming, if you will, is a better thought than reality. Sometimes it's a little more bitter than it is sweet. Jesus goes back to his hometown, and it becomes more bitter than sweet. As he comes, we have this familiar scene. Jesus is in the synagogue teaching on the Sabbath, a scene we should be familiar with, Jesus teaching in the synagogues on the Sabbath. And people recognize Jesus, but they recognize Jesus not just from his ministry, from, but even from before. They know him based on his family. They identify him from his family. Interestingly, Mary and Jesus' brothers are named here, but Mary's husband Joseph is not named here in Mark. Luke mentions it in his account. But Mark doesn't mention Joseph's name here. We can speculate why. It was customary in the time that when you're, you were not known to be the, the son of someone's mother, but is usually referred to in the father. So it would be more customary to refer to yourself as, I am the son of my father, right? And not to the mother. We don't know if there's intention in Mark in this way. Perhaps, as he's identified by the people as the son of Mary, as opposed to Joseph, whether that's supposed to be some kind of slight on Jesus or not, we're not quite sure. But it's interesting that they, they, they know Jesus' family. 
If you remember back in chapter 3, Mary and his brothers were present when Jesus was there uh, in Capernaum. So the people were listening, and they were astonished what Jesus was saying. But this amazement, this astonishment, wasn't one that led to faith. It didn't lead them to believe in Jesus, but quite the opposite. We see a familiar pattern by Mark of threes, right? This pattern of three of emphasis that we've seen in the past. What does Mark's note that they said? From where did he get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? And what is the, this power that gives him the ability to perform these miracles, right? They were astonished by what Jesus was saying and doing, Because they didn't understand where he was getting this from. Where is this? Where is he getting these things? How can he say these things? How is he able to do these things? This word for being offended in Greek literally means to be made to stumble. Right? They weren't amazed and astonished in the sense of like, wow, that's so great. It's amazing. It's a miracle. But it was one that would cause them to stumble. They couldn't get over, what is he, how can he say these things? And perhaps they were, their, their impression was because they knew his family. They knew that Jesus came from more humble, more common background. They said, isn't this the son of the carpenter? We know his mom, his dad, his brothers. We know where he comes from. He came from Nazareth. Nazareth was not this this booming metropolis, the city. It wasn't known to be this center of education. It was a more common city, a smaller village place. We know back in John, if you know John chapter 1 verse 46, when Philip heard of Jesus, he goes to Nathanael thinking that Jesus might be the Messiah that they were looking for. He tells of Jesus, Nathaniel's first impression that we see. He says, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? So we see this reputation of Nazareth. It's like, what good is going to come out of this city? Nazareth was not known or expected to be the source of education. So perhaps the people were tainted by the fact that they knew his family. So they were saying, what kind of training did he have? What gives Jesus the right to teach in this manner? He didn't have the pedigree in the eyes of the people. Who was he to teach these things? Who does he think he is? Verse 4, And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. And he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands upon a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. One commentator likens Jesus' response to a proverb that we might be familiar with. Familiarity breeds contempt. Familiar with that saying? Familiarity breeds contempt. Contempt. What does that mean? The more you know someone, the more contempt you may have 
of them. And know is you have the more ammunition you have to criticize them. I don't know if you've ever been in this scenario. I've seen this situation many times before. Someone approaches two siblings, maybe a brother using like a brother or sister, or maybe you know sisters or two brothers, and that person goes to one of them and says, Oh, is this your brother or your sister? Oh, they're so wonderful, they're so great. I love your brother and your sister. And that sibling looks at them. This guy? Are you sure we're talking about the same person? Some of you are very familiar with the scenario, apparently. You react that way. It's like, wait, you have not seen them at home. You don't know what they're like when no one else is around. Are you sure you're talking about the same person? Right? I've seen that happen with siblings. I've seen that with spouses. That's a little... That's a little awkward. Hey, I love your husband. Oh, I love your wife. And the spouse is like, yeah, you say that to me now, (laughs) right? Familiarity breeds contempt. People knew of Jesus' family, his common background. He didn't come from well-educated stock. Probably was not professionally trained. How could he say such things? And Jesus' response really should be read as an indictment upon the people rather than identifying himself as a mere prophet. His statement is an indictment on the people. Jesus seems to refer to Israel's checkered past of how they dealt with God's prophets in the past. The Lord brought prophets to the people of Israel And what was their response? Their response was one of rejection, of persecution. They didn't want to hear the message that God's prophets had for adulterous, idolatrous Israel. In fact, when Jesus was entering Jerusalem, we see in Matthew 23, verse 37, this dramatic scene as he's looking down at Jerusalem. Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. What a damaging and profound statement Jesus had for Israel. He looks down at Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. They have that history. They persecuted God's messengers. We need to beware of finding ourselves in a position where we're acting against those who speak corrective truth to us. We need, to be, we need to be aware and beware of finding ourselves setting against those who speak corrective truth to us. God sent his prophets to warn, to rebuke, and call Israel to repentance, and they refused. God extended his hand to Israel, and they refused. They rejected the Lord's messengers, and even Jesus, on the cusp of being crucified, he laments over Israel for their rejection. We're going to see in a few weeks John the Baptist, how he was received. 
Sin often leads us to come against those whom God sends as warning to us. We don't like the feeling of guilty, do we? We don't like feeling guilty. When someone comes up to us and tells us, hey, you know what? You're not in a good place. What you're doing is wrong. How you're thinking is wrong. We don't react well to that. Whether it's a parent or a sibling, a pastor, a teacher, whomever it is, or maybe it's a stranger, we did something to them, and they respond, and we know we did something wrong. We don't like that feeling of feeling guilty. But we need to be careful. If we find ourselves saying, let me live my own life. Let me do what I want to do. I don't care if what I'm doing is wrong. We need to be aware that if we find ourselves in that position where our hearts is like, you know what, I don't want to hear God's corrective truth. I don't want to hear what God has to say. Jesus says he is dishonored among his hometown, among his kinsmen, and among his family. Again, Mark's emphasis, this pattern of three as emphasis. Jesus says, no prophet has honor in his hometown, his kinsmen, and even his household. It's striking that even Jesus' family struggled to believe. We know in John 7, 5, John tells us, for not even his brothers were believing in him. It's great to know that that wouldn't last. His family would not always doubt him. We know James, the brother of Jesus, was an apostle of the early church, author of James. Judas is believed to be the potential author of the book of Jude. Right, it's the same name. So we know encouragingly that his family didn't always stay unbelieving. But the most tragic indictment upon the people in Nazareth is in this statement that Jesus says, and he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands upon a few sick people and healed them. Imagine that. He couldn't do any other miracle except a few healings. Luke goes into more detail in chapter 4, verse 15 through 30. In his conversation, in his talking with the people, Jesus refers to the people, he refers to the days of Elijah and Elisha, these Old Testament prophets how they healed and they delivered a widow in Sidon and Naaman the Syrian in that time of need, in their time of need, but did not deliver idolatrous Israel in that time. So what Jesus is saying is, look, God sent his prophets and he rescued, he saved these Gentiles in that time, but idolatrous Israel He did not save in those times. And in that moment, the people who heard Jesus referred to, they got outraged. They were so upset. It's like, what are you saying to us? Are you saying we are like our idolatrous forefathers? Are you saying that we are like them? Who do you think you are coming in here and condemning us like that? Again, we see the sting of guilt And that sting of guilt can often lead us to do things, some crazy, regrettable things. 
right? We know this. We know this when we've been encountered, we've been, someone's corrected us, and we get so upset. Whether it's in a family, when parents say this, a spouse says this, a pastor says this. I'm like, well, who do you think you are? Forget you. You don't know what you're talking about. You don't know anything. Get out of here. Get out of my life. We say things we would regret. Luke tells us the people were so outraged by Jesus, they were trying to drive him out and toss him over the hill, over the cliff. They were so outraged. That was the level of unbelief. So when Mark says Jesus was astonished by their lack of faith, their doubt led to unbelief. And their unbelief led to contempt. And the contempt led to rejection of Jesus. Their contempt and unbelief limited the opportunity to experience Jesus in the moment so that Jesus could only heal a few people. Think about that. Let's go back to Mark for a second. Go back to what we've been seeing these last few weeks. We see this contrast between having faith and here, unbelief. Faith led to miraculous healing, raising the dead to life. Unbelief and rejection closed the door to God's work. It closed the opportunity for Jesus to minister to the people. That's how hard their hearts became. Doubt led to unbelief, led to contempt, led to rejection. He goes on. And he was going around the villages teaching. And he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs. And he was giving them authority over the unclean spirits. And he instructed them that they should, not, they, they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. And he added, do not put on two tunics. And he said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. And any place that does not receive you or listen to you as you go out from there, shake off the dust from the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. And they went out and preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. So all this time, Jesus had his disciples watching, listening, following, and learning. They experienced Jesus' divine authority. They witnessed Jesus at the time. And so now it was their time to be sent out and to be an extension of Jesus and his ministry. So Jesus sends the disciples out in pairs, and their mission was a simple one, one of simplicity. Rely on the reception and generosity of the people. Don't pack food or money. Take only what you're wearing. Do not overpack. We're going to be going on a retreat a few weeks, right? We're going to retreat a few weeks. It's kind of fun on how much experience you've had at retreats. I've been to many retreats. And there's so many, there's some people here now and then, I see them throughout the whole retreat, they're wearing the same clothes. I don't know how you do that. You be you, if that's you, 
I'm not judging you. I'm just saying I couldn't do it. I, I look at them like, weren't you like playing outside in that shirt? <laughs> you know, if you overpack, that's your business. You can, you know, we're going to retreat, so we're not going on a mission, so you can pack two shirts or not. Please pack two shirts, all right? Don't, don't, don't worry about that. You know, get some extra clothes. But here Jesus, he tells them, the, the disciples, look, don't overpack. It's about simplicity. You're going to rely on the generosity and the hospitality of those who receive you. Their mission was focused. Preach the message of repentance and the kingdom of God. And Jesus gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And they casted out demons and were given oil to anoint people and heal them. It's interesting that Jesus gave them oil. They, they were given oil to heal. Olive oil was a common thought that it was used as a med- medicinal ingredient at the time. It's interesting. Jesus, when he healed, he spoke and touched and healed. But they were given oil to anoint people for healing. It's interesting since oil becomes not only commonly used, but a symbol of a healing agent that God, Jesus gives them to, to that way. The oil itself wasn't the healing agent, but that is what they would use as a symbol of the healing. Certainly God would be the power behind the healing, but it wasn't that they spoke and they were healed, but he, God used that, this, this symbol and, and agent of healing with uh, oil. But Jesus instructs them to stay where they were welcomed. But if wherever they were not received, shake off the dust from the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. I imagine this scenario. Jesus is telling them. He says to Peter and the disciples, okay, stay where you're being welcomed. But if you come upon a town or some people that does not like what you're saying, and rejects you because of me. What are you going to do? And the disciples say, I, I, I shake it off. I shake it off. And shake off that dust. I didn't realize Taylor Swift's songs were so biblical. You know? All right, so I'm going to say this little story. I told Michaela yesterday, I said, you know, I can make a joke. She's like, what is it? I don't know if I tell you. I don't know if I'm going to do it. It's like, well, just do it. I said, I don't know if I will. Because I always told myself, you know, I'm not going to be the pastor who gives all the, like, the corny pastor jokes, you know. But I was like, all right, I'm, I, I might do it anyways. Some of you are like, I don't, I don't get it. I don't know what the joke was. If you don't get it, ask your kids. And then you can laugh with them or not laugh with them. But Jesus, he goes to them. And he says, if you are not received by them, shake off the dust as a testimony against them. At that time, it was a very symbolic act. The Pharisees, when they left a Gentile area as an offense, it was an unclean area, they shake off the dust of their feet as a testimony against them. In our context, it would be like this. If we just put a hand to the face, have you ever had that happen to you? There's nothing that angers me more than the hand to the face. I hope no one still does that. They're like, put the hand to your face, like, I don't want to hear it. Forget you. And they walk away. Oh, that gets me so upset. Right? 
What are they saying? I don't want to have anything to do with you. Some of you be like this. I wipe my hands with you. I have nothing to do with it. I shake it off. I don't want to have anything more to do with this. This is a serious statement by Jesus. It's an interesting bookend to the reception of Jesus. Remember, when Jesus goes to Nazareth, they reject him. And so they, he tells the disciples, look, you go, and where you go, if they do not receive you, move on. Now, I, need, I think we need to be careful to apply this, that this is not a universal approach to ministry for us today. I don't think this was intended for us today to say this is how we are to approach ministry. Like if you go to somebody and you're trying to witness to share Christ with them and they're like not real receptive of it and say, you know, I, I don't believe, I don't, do I don't think Jesus is saying then you know what, shake it off and say, you know, forget you. <laughs> I don't think that's the approach. We have to remember this is happening within a context. The beginning of Jesus' ministry I don't think we're to apply that to our situations now. But this is what Jesus was instructing the disciples at this time. So the disciples were that extension of Jesus and his ministry and his message. So here we see again Mark's prominent theme throughout our study and our time. This, com- this contrast of faith and unbelief acceptance and rejection. Jesus is teaching like no other. He's performing these miracles that only God can do. He's calling his disciples, his followers, and they're choosing to follow him. They respond to this calling. And the crowds are witnessing this, and they're flocking, and they're hearing him. And even perhaps they're receiving their own miracle in their own life. Yet while this is happening, we see that there are also those who reject him, who refuse to believe. Their refusal is symptomatic of this hardness of hearts. And we saw the fullness of this hardness of heart with the scribes. This blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. They rejected Christ. They they understood that what he's doing has to be of God. But they rejected him. And what did they do? They attributed what Jesus was doing to evil. It must be the work of Satan. That is where hardness of heart can go. To defiant rejection of Christ. This is the tragedy of unbelief. The tragedy of unbelief is the rejection of God and his son whom he sent on our behalf. Jesus came because sinful man needed God's intervention. His grace, his mercy. And today we see the societal effects of unbelief. This pursuit of pleasure is leading to a depravity and an acceleration of moral decay and corruption. And the society is painting God even as being evil. Things of God as being evil. And we have to understand the great judgment that separates us from God. It's not just simply sin. 
right? We know that Christ's sacrifice covers sin. Our sinful past and what we may do in the future is not that dividing line. Christ can cover that. What's what's the most tragic part of sin is that sin leads to rejection of Christ. That sin that leads us to unbelief. Many people know John 3.16, right? We all know John 3.16, you're familiar. Not as many people know the following verses. John says, or Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light is come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Jesus saying the dividing line, the eyes of God, is not just that sin, he covers sin, but the problem of sin is that it leads to unbelief. It leads to rejection. It leads to loving the darkness rather than the light. You'd rather love the other things than love God. And we have to consider and think, will sin continue to divide us from the Lord? Do we love these things more than God? See, those who pursue pleasure, pleasure becomes their God. Lowercase g. That's whom they serve. That's whom they worship. Whatever object of pleasure, that's what they pursue. And that becomes the object, uh, object of their affections. That's why they're so lost and lonely. The tragedy of the pursuit of pleasure The tragedy of it, it leads to missing out the one who can truly bring pleasure. That's the tragedy of it all. If you live your life now for the pursuit of pleasure, you will find yourself missing out on the ultimate source of pleasure and joy. The tragedy is that you think that everything, your counted days in this lifetime is going to bring you the ultimate fulfillment when in reality, it's leading to your destruction. I want to close with a series of verses. Now I know many people, there are many who believe that God predetermines who will believe and who will not believe. And uh, I'll say I don't agree that the whole of Scripture testifies to this. That God has already predetermined who's going to believe, who's not going to believe. I see a consistent message throughout Scripture. God calls people to repent, to faithfulness, to respond in faith and live by faith based on who he is, and what he has done. 
And God calls us to have relationship, a loving relationship with him. And I see this message consistent throughout scripture that people are held accountable for their faithfulness or unfaithfulness, their acceptance or rejection. And why do I say this? Why do I point this out? That whole debate and discussion, whether God predetermines it or not, who's going to be saved, who's going to be not, who's going to believe, who's not going to believe, that whole debate is centered on a mystery that we may not fully be able to describe or not. But as a preacher, as a pastor, and as a believer in Christ, I would not want anyone to wrestle with this thinking, well, if God determined it, I will. If he didn't, I won't. Because that attitude breeds this level of, I'm not accountable. I'm not accountable to whether I accept, believe, have faith or not. I think it breeds this attitude, well, I don't know. I pray that it will, maybe it will, maybe it won't. Let me end with these verses. John eleven twenty five through 26. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And if everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. John 14, 6. Jesus said to them, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and then not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. There will not be one single person who will be able to boast before God and say, God, look what I did with my life. I was such a good person. I did so much. I did so much for you. I did so much for humanity. Believe in you? No, I didn't go to church. No, I didn't believe in Jesus. I didn't believe in you, but look what I did. We're not saved by our works, how good we can be. It's only by the grace of God that we can have salvation. In talking to the people, the people wondered, What must we do in light of what they heard of Jesus? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They were confronted with the truth of Christ, and they said, Okay, I hear of the Jesus. What must we do? Peter said, Repent. Turn away from your old way of life. And be baptized in the name of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and receive the Holy Spirit. Last one, Romans 10. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Whenever a loved one passes away, Death kind of has a a way of reminding us of the scope of life. 
right? When a loved one passes away, we tend to reflect on life a little bit more. The days that we are living in. And it reminds us that, you know what? The days that we're living in isn't all that. The purpose in our life is not just limited to the days that we have on this earth. For those in Christ, we have a hope that goes beyond this life here on earth. And it would be a tragedy if we live our lives in unbelief and miss out on the very hope that God has for us. We don't want to find ourselves living a tragic story of unbelief. But to know that Christ has given you hope, Christ is there to offer salvation to those who will believe. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord God, I come before you. And Lord, I just lift up those who may be hearing or listening. I lift up those who may be wrestling and struggling and wondering about their faith in you. Do I believe in this Jesus? Do I believe that Jesus is who the Bible says he is, that he did what the Bible says he did? Is there any truth to this whole God thing? Can I trust in Jesus? Can I live my life following Jesus? Is it going to be worth it? Will it make a difference? Lord, I pray that for that wrestling heart right now, that your spirit would speak truth into their heart and mind. That they would know in their mind and in their hearts your word is true. That Jesus, you are who you say you are and you did what you did and you love them and want to restore them and change their unbelief to a bold, radical faith. We thank you, Lord God, for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and let's worship. Mm -hmm.